This is a Founding Media podcast. This is From Tanks to Teleportation, a podcast where we explore the intersection of technology, business, and national security with the leaders of the Defense Innovation Unit, part of the U.S. Department of Defense. I'm your host, Dan Dillard, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Zach Walker, the Texas lead for the DIU. Today, Zach and I are joined by Bilal Zuberi, a partner at Lux Capital. Lux is a venture capital firm investing in emerging science and technology that prides itself on attracting clients that are building the future. The firm's work is linked to the DoD because they're often early co-investors in tech startups. Then when the companies they've invested in have products that are ready for market, the DoD is often a top customer. Let's go to our conversation to hear Bilal explain more. Zach, thanks for being on the show again. Uh, Bilal, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Good to be here. I'd love to start out by sharing your story and maybe telling us a little bit more about who Lux is and the path on how you became a partner there. So Lux Capital is a bi-coastal venture firm managing about $2.5 billion, investing in early stage deep technology companies. We invest in companies that are addressing real problems in the world, addressing very large markets, and usually things that have uh, deep technical expertise required or deeply uh, deep technical risk associated with it. Uh, for that, uh, you know, in, in many ways, turns out to be investments in hardware, software systems, autonomous systems, automation, robotics, computer vision, semiconductor chips, biotech, computational biology, and and a lot of things that frankly sometimes feel like science fiction becoming reality, which technology enables uh, to happen these days. Um, I've been a partner here for, for many years. Before that, I was at a firm called General Catalyst. I've been a VC now for 12 years. Before that, I was an entrepreneur. I built a company in advanced materials for automotive and biomedical applications. And before that, I did uh, a PhD at MIT. Uh, and uh, and before that, I was an undergrad. And before that, I was a you know immigrant student in this country. Wow! Wow! Congratulations on all that. That's that's awesome. Bilal, thanks again for joining us today. It's really wonderful to have someone from the venture community. So when we put this podcast together, calling it Defense Innovation from Tanks to Teleportation, this idea, like you said, science fiction becoming reality. So much of that in this country happens through things like venture investment. So it's wonderful to have you on the show since your firm has worked with the DOD. You do have portfolio companies that do this dual use work. Could you speak a bit to what led you to work with the DOD, what that was like, what what has made dual use technology an attractive investment for Lux? I mean, I think maybe this is underappreciated by some in the technology sector, but certainly those who are, understand the history of the technology sector and the startup world and, and Silicon Valley and Boston ecosystems and otherwise understand that DOD has played an extremely important role in, in promoting technology and, and, and frankly, uh, bringing technology to life. Um, and to date, a lot of companies that we work with, the origins of the technology merge out of grants that were made either by the, you know, Air Force or Navy or um, or DARPA or or otherwise. So certainly, uh, the the origins of technology and a lot of hard tech, deep tech technology uh, has either DoD as a core, you know, uh, supporter and funder. Uh, or definitely an early beneficiary. We believe uh, that uh, DOD is 
both a long-term and a short-term partner to these companies. Um, you know, it is a uh, an early believer, an early uh, you know uh, funder of these technologies, so they become our co-partner and co-investor in these companies. But at the same time, uh, if done right, and there's a big if because there's a lot of uh, you know things that need to get done right along the way, they can become a very large customer for some of these technologies as well. We also believe that. Um, you know, we we are American citizens, and you know our uh, our soldiers and our um, you know the Department of Defense workforce broadly should have access to the best available technology that the country has to offer. Uh, and there's no reason why uh, anybody else anywhere in the world should have access to any technology before we do. I'm curious, what was your reaction when one of your portfolio companies decided to work with the Department of Defense? Did you have any reservations, and was that what was the expectation versus the reality of your experience? I'm just kind of curious about that. I think uh, working with the DOD as an early investor in these companies or early investor in technologies is uh, has been relatively easy, I would say. And 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 there wasn't much um, you know hesitation certainly from our part in any which way. I think it was when they when we thought about DOD as a customer that there was um, definitely differences that we realized. Um, there, um, there are obviously issues of secrecy, privacy, and secure national security stuff that one has to deal with. And we all had to go through such processes multiple times now. Uh, but also, you know, the, the buying processes are different. The accounting processes uh, are, are different. And, and most importantly, uh, and this I think the two sites, both Silicon Valley and DOD, are still trying to understand each other, is um, product market fit is sort of golden words in technology. You have an idea, you have a technology, you take that, you turn it into a product, and then you want to make sure that this is a product that the market wants and the market wants is best exhibited by the market paying for it. This is something that uh, has been harder to achieve with DOD as customers. DOD has easy mechanisms in place often to, to provide grants and support the development of technology, but it takes much longer time for them to become uh, customers. And I think when we first started working with the DOD, that both came as a little bit of a surprise uh, on how arduous those processes might be, but also a little bit about the opaqueness of it, where, frankly, you know, um, we, we had to learn how to find those, some of those answers uh, and figure out how to work with the innovators within the Department of Defense who are there and they exist. We just have to find them. Yeah, to that end, you know, we like to think that we provide that connective tissue between the commercial world and the Department of Defense. It's certainly a challenge with the DoD being a monopsony, generally being a single buyer. It completely changes those dynamics of what you see in venture-backed companies. Could you speak a bit about what it was like specifically with DIU? Since we try to make things more commercial, we try to make things go a little bit faster, perhaps 60 days more so than you know five years, which I know sometimes the acquisition machine can can take. Was it changing the changing that dynamic through DIU? Was that something that you saw made it easier for your companies? And if so, how? Oh, look, um, I've been investing in companies that directly sell to or want to sell to the DOD for over a decade. And uh, for the first many years of that, it, it felt like a little bit of the Wild West, right? Like you have these technologists that are PhDs and coming out of technology industries or coming out of university labs, and they have this amazing idea and they start building it. And then they build it with venture money for 
one or two years and then they want to take it to market and the market is the, the department of defense and and there's this wall and they don't know how to penetrate they don't know who to call so then they end up hiring somebody who had experience with the uniform and has been inside the military and they bring him on as sort of the messiah that's going to fix it all but that doesn't work and there was really not many people to 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 be able to really talk to and understand so the creation of the diu and diux uh, the predecessor name um was really important. I, I think it was important for a few different reasons. One uh, was that there needs to be a communication and education on both sides. Um, you know, speaking for Silicon Valley, certainly I felt that there was a need for an education around how Department of Defense works. It is a monolith entity, but it is not quite a monolith, <laughs> right? Uh, and and you know, what are the different various mechanisms by which you can work with? Uh, you know, the Army and the Navy and the Air Force and 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 so on. So I think that education was very helpful uh, and continues to be helpful. I think there's probably a translation that you guys do of how Silicon Valley works, the 18 month cycles of financing and so on, back to the customer side. That you know, the the venture capital, especially now, is flush with money. Like there's no shortage of money that we can invest in companies. The question is, who's a customer that you want to put that money behind? You know, in in, in the way CEOs and board members talk is, you know, you have a bunch of uh, arrows that you are trying to, to find commercial viability of the product that you have now invested in, but you want to put wood behind the arrow that shows more success. And I think DIU has been absolutely critical in some ways for many companies, uh, not just some companies in our portfolio, but I think broadly, and in fact, more so for other companies than in our portfolio, in opening uh, doors so that people understand how will your technology actually get operationalized. So taking the step that goes above and beyond, you know, small grants as BIR programs and so on and so forth to the place where there is a customer on the other side that's going to be deploying significant dollars, but more importantly, using your technology and giving you real feedback on what the technology can and cannot achieve and what it needs to achieve. And I think that's been that's been very important. It's also been in, useful that, you know, you within DIU, at least with my limited experience, you have people who have commercial background, you have people who have military background, you have, you have people from all sorts of, you know, government broadly, you know, uh, uh, that they understand the various stakeholders uh, and and this is a complex process, whether this is a two month process, like 60 days, or whether it's a, you know, OTA that could take a little bit longer, or whether it is a program of record that is the ultimate thing that people want to create and have access to. Uh, these are complicated processes. And, and I think you guys having those multiple stakeholders involved uh, makes it easier for you to provide that that education back to to startups. Who, who are strapped for cash, who are strapped for talent in, as far as this is concerned, selling is concerned. And, and every CEO that I've spoken to that you work with uh, truly appreciates the work that you guys do. From a company's perspective, I'm kind of curious about once one lands a contract with the Department of Defense, I assume that that company immediately needs investor partners to scale quickly. Is that usually the case? And secondly, what does having a Department of Defense contract do for valuations of these startup companies in the eyes of a VC such as Lux? So we talk about this a lot, uh, not only within Lux, but also among the venture community that is interested in defense tech and invest in companies that work with, uh, with the defense sector. We are in the business of investing in early stage technology, taking on the technology risk, solving those technical problems and creating products that an end customer will need. That is our business. So, you know, while a little bit of help here and there with some, you know, grant money and so on is, is useful, uh, we can do that. We get paid to do that. Um, 
the risk we take is that they will be customer on the other side. De- Department of Defense is seen as a customer, as a very large customer. Um, once, so the, the process of landing a contract, and by contract, I mean contract where I will be selling products and you will be buying products. You'll be paying me for the products. I can calculate a gross margin and a net margin, and I can talk about scalability and at what scale does this company reach cash flow break even, and so on and so forth. All of those things that come with it. Landing that kind of a contract is a major step in a in a, in a company's life, uh, and 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 this is where I think you know organizations like DIU are absolutely critical in in, in helping make that transition. Um, once that contract lands, I think what you the the most important box that get checked off is product market fit. Customer wants your product. When that happens, there's actually significant amounts of additional capital available at that time. Uh, to deploy for scaling, for manufacturing, for servicing in the field, for for the whole operation that needs to get set up at that point for the company to become a bigger company and to become a bigger supplier. Uh, Again, that capital is available, but that is a lower risk capital and it needs to see significant commitment from the customer. Um, we, I can tell you from our experience, you know, and, you know, uh, with, with a few exceptions, first early traction with the customer side, you go to investors and you say, hey, military is really interested. They bought two of our systems and you know, gave us a million dollar NPL. Like, the investor is like, okay, who can I talk to? Who's a customer reference that I'll call? Like, well, which colonel or general am I giving a phone number to to call? There's nobody who will pick up a phone. Even if they pick up a phone, they'll say, yeah, we like this technology, but we can't tell you anything about how we're using it, how much we're going to use it, what our needs really are. So the new investor is like, well, okay, I don't know what that means. Like, is this the last order you will see or is this going to continue? So that's one challenge that I need that needs to get overcome. And I think DIU helps overcome some of that. The second challenge that then happens is, um, you know, we're starting to get contracts. We're starting to get orders. Will they be sustainable? Is this filling a short-term gap? Are these one-off contracts or is there a sustained need for this particular capability or this particular need within the, uh, this particular technology within the DOD? I think those are like trying to figure out repeat contracts. And then the third one is, you know, when, when these contracts become large and more importantly, you know, when this becomes operationalized and now lives of people are depending on this technology working at scale, then it is also, you know, I think what kind of partnerships need to exist uh, in the battlefield, so to say, that all the other technologies sort of work together. That this is not, you know, these are not one-offs. You know, you buy X from this party and Y from that party, and now somebody has to figure out how to integrate these things. And so, um, you know, then then the complexity of it uh, increases, and other parties become involved, whether it's the you know the, the large primes or integrators or otherwise. Uh, and again, this is also a place where you know uh, some entity like a DIU can be quite helpful in bridging that gap. Definitely. So trying to disambiguate the DOD is really an important thing that we we try to provide. And I think also a lot of companies assume that contracts with the government, this is services contracts, right? This is people sitting in a seat doing a job, does not really help valuations that well. What we do, hyper-focused on product revenue, which is something that especially early stage startups to be able to have that kind of traction, not only having product revenue from the DOD, but also having a design partner. I was talking to one of our portfolio companies who said, it was so valuable to have that as a Department of Defense partner to help us be a design partner and work through the process. I'll never forget a diligence call as a portfolio company was raising its Series A. I told them on the phone, the investors, that, yeah, it's being used all across the DoD, every service, 
There's some major intelligence agencies. Um, they love it. Yeah, it's seed stage, but it's in the hands of operators all across the DoD, and and they're jazzed about it. I had silence on the other end of the phone. They couldn't believe that a company that was relatively that early stage had such traction, and that's because we offered them a, a very very good product contract and and help them be design partners. So I I think you've you've nailed it. This is the I, I cannot stress that enough. That uh, while there's absolutely a reason for very early stage grants to exist, you know, whether it's the SBIR programs or other mechanisms that might exist, they're great, they're important, they play a very important role. Um, what we're talking about is finding Silicon Valley, uh, getting Silicon Valley and some of the best engineers and scientists and technologists in Silicon Valley to work on defense tech technologies. These guys... Um, uh, are 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 interested in what some investors have called sort of these hyperscaling companies, right? Companies that become worth billion dollars or more, so to say, proverbially. Well, to get to a billion dollars or more and to get there in the time scale that VCs have in mind, you know, you need to have 100, 200 million dollars in revenue, right? 100, 200 million dollars of revenue is not going to come with grants. It's not going to come with R&D, you know, one-time NREs. It's going to be product revenue. How do we make that happen? If we don't make that happen, frankly, we are all losers, right? Like venture industry or startup industry will continue to invest in the next chat app or social media app or whatever in the hell is, you know, the next big thing. But it is not going to be, you know, uh, helping our national security or defense forces, you know, fight a better war or safer for, for our soldiers and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and so I think we have to find a way around this if we want the best engineers in the country to be able to work on defense tech technologies. And I think the what you just said, that we help people find product revenue, that becomes critical. We we are fine if we build a product that the customer doesn't want, right? If, if, we, if I build a product, I take a risk that I'm going to build X, that X could be you know, a weaponized system, it could be an autonomous car, it could be a component, it could be a device, it doesn't matter. If I take that risk and I have risk capital available to invest in that and I, and I choose to invest it in something that is not going to do for the customer what it needs to do, my bad. I made a bad bet and happens all the time. Seven out of 10, you know, startups don't find the right customer and don't grow. But, um, but where it is solving the problem that the customer have, which is providing the capability that the customer has, it's doing so at, at a lower cost, it's doing so better than anything else than anybody else can provide. Um, and yet we get caught in a bureaucratic quagmire or, or a process that, that just doesn't fit the timelines uh, of, of, the, of the startup world, uh, then I think it's just, uh, it's very unfortunate because, you know, I've been doing this for, as I said, for over a decade. There are other investors who've been doing it. But, you know, we're at a moment right now where there is a significant amount of interest from the venture industry to work with the Department of Defense. What we don't want is for that for that interest to go away, right? It doesn't take very long. It just takes one cycle for people to be like, yeah, this is great and I love it and God bless them and patriotism, but you know, not exactly where I want to invest my LP's money. And that is, that's a real problem and that's a real risk. And I think part of the work that some of us who've been investing in defense tech do is constantly educate other investors so that they participate in this, more capital is drawn in. We introduce them to people like DIU and others to, to say, you know, guys, there's resources available to figure out how to work with the defense and military. They will tell you what the needs are. They'll tell you the processes. And nothing is easy. I can tell you it wasn't easy for me, but, you know, it's worth giving it a shot because there's real businesses to be built here. I'm really glad you brought that up because 
patriotism is wonderful. I mean, again, we all love this nation, but patriotism does not help EBITDA in any way, right? So we have to be very real about the fact that these companies, they have bills to pay. And we're not looking to make defense contractors. We're looking to make extremely successful companies with very good recurring product revenue that just happens to have a decent portion of it from the DoD. So we've we found it very important to try to to, to make that distinction. 100%. Look, we not only are we stewards for somebody else's money, like this is not my personal money that I can decide to dedicate to X, Y, or Z. Uh, so we have to we have to generate returns for, for our investors and we have to invest in the best technologies that would return the best uh, returns for them. But in addition to that, defense industry is interested in working with Silicon Valley for one reason and one reason alone, in my opinion, which is that we have some of the world's best engineers and scientists that are working in Silicon Valley. And when I say Silicon Valley, I don't mean geography, Silicon Valley. I mean the tech industry broadly, wherever you might be located. We've been able to attract the best talents, not only from across this country, but frankly, over the last 25, 30, 40 years from across the world. We've been able to do that because we're able to provide the sort of economic uh, opportunities that simply have not existed anywhere else. The immigrant story of Elon Musk is right there in front of us you know, grew up in South Africa and comes out here and creates bang, 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 bang. How many billion dollar companies has he created? You know, uh, it's right there in front of us. We want more Elon Musk's. We want more companies like that. Uh, and, and, and I think that talent exists in Silicon Valley and we have to show them that you can do that. You can build the next SpaceX or Palantir or Andorol or whatever it might be. You can do that by working with the defense department as either the primary customer, or at least one of your customers. So having said that, I know that you mentioned uh, earlier in the, in the podcast about some of the privacy things that you have to abide by and so on and so forth as an investor. But from what you can share, what have been some of the impressive solutions, maybe capabilities that you've witnessed personally uh, from companies to help shape the future of the Department of Defense? I think there's, uh, you know, there's a, a few broad themes that, uh, that Silicon Valley is excited about. And, and I think Department of Defense can really benefit from that. Uh, let me name a few. And obviously, we have portfolio companies that, that, um, that provide those technologies in various ways, whether it's to the DOD, various functions, or intelligence agencies. Or One is around uh, automation. You know, broadly speaking, when we talk about the use of robotics and automation, and we talk about efficiency, and we talk about speeding things up, um, you know, Defense Department is responsible for a very big chunk of manufacturing in our country, right? So when we think about robotics manufacturing for metal parts, or we think about 3D printing uh, of, of, of metal and plastic parts uh, at scale for manufacturing, we are, you know, all the cost benefits that accrue to the Ford and the GM and the BMWs of the world also accrue to our, um, you know, our, our DOD manufacturers, whether it's the Lockheed Martins of the world or partners of us in Tempo or otherwise. Um, the, the second thing is around autonomous systems, whether you're talking about autonomous vehicles and simulation of autonomous vehicles, or you're talking about autonomous drones, uh, aerial drones or ocean going drones. These are all companies that are doing work with the DOD right now. So we have, uh, you know, DIU is actually a partner for us in sail drone, which is working with the U S Navy right now and NGA right now. Uh, we have AirMap, which is doing work with the air force right now and, you know, and, and providing uh, a UTM, the solution for managing drones uh, everywhere. We have Andoril that does a lot of work with DOD around drones and otherwise and counter drone systems. Um, a third area broadly is around AI and AI in think about NLP, machine learning AI broadly. So companies like Primer and others come to mind. These are companies that you have 
a ton of data that gets generated either on the intelligence side or on the manufacturing side or system side that you need to process. And you need to create summaries of it to understand what is happening there. The same way that Walmart gets perhaps millions of comments on its website and they need to make sense of it because nobody's going to sit there and read millions of comments. The same thing applies to DOD as well and intelligence agencies as well. So we have that kind of companies. And then you have, um, you know, companies that would be, um, uh, that, that are sort of science fiction bringing to reality, right? So you have... Um, Drones that were built, um, you know, for for consumer purposes can now go at, you know, 100 plus miles an hour. Now, pilots that are flying those drones uh, and becoming experts at it, these guys are amazing simulators for like, how do you fly the future generation military planes? How are you going to actually operate in tough environments and fast moving environments? A completely new training education paradigm. Gamers, how do you use them? to train our, our military. So we have companies like Drone Racing League, State Space, and others that, that provide those kind of talents uh, to, to DOD-type customers. And last but not the least is um, companies in, 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 you know, in biology and biotech and others, whether it's, you know, obviously, you know, our military is directly involved, whether we like it or not, in, in fighting this, this pandemic that we're dealing with right now. And they have to be, right? And, and suddenly, you know, whether it's drug development or access to drugs or trials or treatment or epidemiology or public health, military needs access to the best technologies. And uh, so even the more what we would consider the benign, you know, apps and so on, these are very relevant for military to be able to do the task that they're called to do. And, and so I think there's a vast variety of companies that, that provide, uh, that can provide and do provide uh, technology solutions to the DOD. And uh, I am, I'm amazed that um, I would say 10 years ago, people used to come to us and say, you know, we're a military specific company. Like, you know, here's a thing we're building because, you know, Army gave us this grant and we built it for that. And this is our customer. How often we see companies who pitch us, I would say maybe 50% of the companies who pitch us, we can, while they're pitching us, we can see that, hey, man, DOD can be a customer of yours. Like DOD can use this capability. We just have to then figure out how to not only translate their product into DOD's needs, but more importantly, make that business connection so that um, they're able to build their business models as well as their business teams to be able to succeed in working with the, with the defense department. What you're saying reminds me of that quote. That's something like the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed yet. And I think that's, it's actually come up before on this podcast, I think, because that's really where DIU lives, right? The future is out there. You just mentioned it. Autonomy, artificial intelligence, these things exist commercially. They're just not necessarily in the DOD yet. And I think for Lux, it sounds like there's a lot more purpose than simply just giving good returns to LPs. Although certainly you have to give good returns to LPs. But could you speak a bit more to how Lux wants to impact the world and, and perhaps accelerate that transition of future technology being here today? Well, so we think some of the most interesting things happen at the intersection of multiple disciplines, right? So whether you're talking physics, chemistry, computer science, biology, and so on, or you're talking about, you know, defense that needs very precise, very specific capabilities, but they need it ideally at a price point that would be seen as a commercial price point, right? And I think, you know, we are interested in finding solutions that address these very large markets, very large problems uh, in ways that, uh, you know, feel like a commercial entity, right? We're not interested in creating yet another prime 
we want to create, if it is a prime, it's a prime that is, you know, highly innovative, highly successful, you know, reducing the cost of the solutions that we can provide to make it affordable for us to implement it in the field quicker and faster. Uh, and most importantly, companies that are dual, dual use so that they're also providing their solutions to, to, to um, other uh, markets as well. You know, Innovation, if you look back, you know, and I, I, I learned it from actually another investor, so full attribution to, to Mark Andresen, who, who's a co-investor with me in a few companies. Um, innovation used to happen uh, with defense as the first customer. Then it used to go to commercial uh, customers, and then it would end up in the co- uh, consumer's hands, right? Um, and somehow over the last 25 years or so, that flipped. The innovation now happens first for the consumers. You and I get access to the best technologies first. Then we go to the commercial sector, right? Enterprise customers then get access to, you know, oh, bring your own phone at work so you can now use your iPhone at work when all of us had used iPhone for years. And then eventually it ends up in defense department, right? Is there a reason and is there a way for us to flip that again? Why should not defense department be an early it should not have early access to technology, early user of that technology, perhaps influencer on the development of that technology, um, either as a, as earlier than everybody else or at least at the same time as everybody else, but certainly not three, five, or 10 years after we're already done using it in, in everyday sector. Because what happens is if it enters the con- con- consumer sector first, it ends up getting used everywhere around the world. We have other countries that are not friendly countries to us who get you know, access to that and they run to use that for military purposes. So they end up getting access to some of that stuff in their defense departments before we end up getting access to it for our defense department. And I think that is not something that we want to continue to do. And certainly I think it hampers our, our military's ability to, um, to be most effective at what they're doing, at least as far as the parts where, you know, innovative new technology is concerned. That's just crazy. I hadn't ever thought of it that way, but you're exactly right. If you go back and look at the old James Bond movies and everything else, it was always the military that had all the latest gadgets and everything else. And you're like, ooh, I want that. And all of a sudden, <laughs> that's all flipped. So it does that, – that certainly – I was thinking about that as you were talking. You mentioned earlier uh, this, you know, COVID. In this new world of COVID, uh, what technologies do you want to see over the next five years that could help shape the future of the nation or the world? Well, um, Several things come to mind. Look, I'm actually writing an op-ed on this, and so hopefully it'll get published soon. Uh, COVID has exposed for us how vulnerable the systems we set up are, right? We, uh, we have, and it's, it, the vulnerability is not just that, you know, of course, there's a pandemic, and unfortunately, it's leading to life loss and so on and so forth, but also just our systems broke down in some ways. Right. We, we worked for 25, 30 years to to have the lowest cost manufacturing of everything, which meant all our supply chains were heavily concentrated in China and some other parts of the world. Well, it turns out, what do you do if you can't have ships and planes coming from China here? Well, your supply chains break. If China shuts down a city or shuts down a hospital or shuts down a company, your supply chain is stuck. How do we deal with that? How do we make our supply chains um you know, resistant to this sort of a breakdown? How do we make them more adaptable? How do we make them more resilient? We have to think about that across everything from drugs and drug delivery. Like what if the vaccine gets invented in China? How do we get access to that, right? Uh, to, to manufacturing, to uh, food, 
you know, we, we built our supply chains around food in such a way that on one hand, we have, you know, food not available on shelves in U.S. markets. And on the other hand, we have potatoes rotting in the fields because we set up our supply chain such that the food that is sold to restaurants, there's no way for us to repackage it and sell it to consumers directly. And well, guess what? It's not going to the restaurants, so it's rotting in the field. How, so I think we have to completely rethink, uh, you know, how we have configured our 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 industrial, agricultural, medical uh, base, um, and 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 a part of that could be lessons learned from biology, right? Like we build systems that have to be resilient, systems that can adapt, systems that can learn. We haven't done that, and I think we can do that in every which way, whether it comes from you know onshoring some of the stuff. So some of the stuff needs to be brought back here. You know, we, we, we've been hearing even the government talking about semiconductor supply chain needs to be brought back to the U.S. I think that's definitely an important need. We've been having these discussions around 5G and the infrastructure for 5G. That's an important one. But if you think about 3D printing, if you think about automation, manufacturing, robotics, if you think about, you know, drug discovery and testing, uh, you know, there's a lot of different areas, you know, the, the next generation foods, the alternative proteins, there's a whole lot of stuff that I think we took for granted that we will have access to. And I think pandemic has exposed that these supply chains, these processes, these systems we've set up are not resilient and they're not capable of handling shocks, which can come pandemics. We could be another pandemic, you know, another flu pandemic. Uh, it could be war. And either we are engaged in that war or war somewhere else that affects it. It could be an oil crisis. Like we've seen, you know, Saudi Arabia and Russia go up against each other and we are stuck paying the price for it. Uh, and or it could be climate change induced. Like we we don't know what the next uh, problem will be, but it is important to know that we have to be prepared better than we found ourselves in light of this particular uh, problem. Yeah, that's that's really a fascinating way to put it. And certainly for the supply chain stuff, you know, COVID has been a such a terrible disaster and it's exposed so many of these weaknesses. But in many ways, the Department of Defense has also seen these weaknesses over over many, many years. I know when I was in Iraq, whenever something would flare up with Pakistan, suddenly we don't get what we need anymore, right? And so that resiliency, which again, as you, you mentioned, it's so hard for DOD to start building this in because we typically have had last access to this technology, trying to flip that around with DIU and organizations like us trying to bring in that technology. Hopefully the DOD and what we adopt in response to COVID can then, as we were saying earlier, then go back and help industry, help the commercial world catch back up. That would be a really yeah. wonderful way to flip flip things. You know, I I would say one other thing. We, we it, it's when I think about supply chain, it's not just about reshoring back to the US. That would be one part of it. I think it's also thinking about the risk associated with the centralization of that broadly. So, um, you know, when we take all our manufacturing to China, China then goes out searching for raw materials around the world. Then China creates relationships with countries, whether it's in Africa or ports in Asia or whatnot, to then own their relationships with those countries. China has a then a much stronger commercial partnership with some of these countries than the U.S. does. And we have to change that. We, you know, if, if you're 3D printing products, there's no reason why a, you know, a Caterpillar tractor that you buy, it's the replacement component necessarily needs to come either from US or from China. It can be produced on site in, 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 in wherever in Africa that you might be. You can provide 3D printing technology that's US technology. You can provide the designs get sent over encrypted real time for it to print the product and be available. There's no reason for a chunk of metal to be transported from, you know, Australia or Africa back to China to then be machined. And then the value added product from China goes out that creates a lot of economic value for them. 
and makes them feel like the benefactors to the countries where these products are going. I think if you rethink about supply chain with other you know, factors in mind, I think we would do things differently. In the past, we, you know, we, we went down the path of full globalization, and I think we were a big supporter of globalization broadly, but I think we forgot that there are other factors that are really important. National security is one of them, and we're facing that now. But it also has to do, as I said, with resiliency and ability to adopt to changing circumstances, um, political or otherwise, um, that can bring our own industries to, to, to a halt. And, and we have to think about, we think about insurance in everyday lives. You know, we have life insurance, we have a disability insurance, we have all kinds of insurances, right? But what is the insurance for us as an economy and for us as a country, if something dramatic was to happen, like a pandemic or like a global catastrophe due to climate change or something like that? So Bilal, talking about the Department of Defense and the investment community being partners, I think at last count, about six Lux portfolio companies working with DIU. So it's really a very, very fortunate to have that that relationship. What advice would you offer other investors, either working with DOD or perhaps not yet working with DOD, but maybe willing to? Uh, first and foremost, the you know this is the highest level, and then we'll get to more tactical stuff. The highest level advice is you know uh, tech sector broadly used to be sort of this cottage industry in a corner. The prototype was you know you have a bunch of guys eating pizza, coding away, creating a website that you can maybe sell some used socks on. Uh, I, I exaggerate, but you know the idea was that these are people that are, you know are just kind of nerds in a corner and don't have to be answerable to the society. Well, it turns out that that era has kind of passed. We represent some of the largest companies on our stock exchanges. We represent some of the largest employers here and globally. We have uh, we're largest media organizations now that reach billions of people globally on a daily basis. We you know are attributed uh, our products are attributed to causing revolutions in other countries and so on. The tech sector has now a very important role to play. And I think we see this on a daily basis, whether it's you know censorship in China or censorship in the US or uh, or, um, or or the products we build and how we use them and and so on and so forth. So I think we have to, as leaders of that industry, and I speak to CEOs and I speak to founders and I speak and right now speaking also to VCs, we have to take ownership and we have to uh, we have to be serious about this. We are playing on a bigger stage in a bigger way than we used to 25, 30 years ago. And when when we, you play at that stage, national security has a role to play, whether it's here or anywhere else in the world. Whichever country you work in, their national security will be just as important in our national security, and you will have to deal with that. And you need to have your moral compass right, and you need to have your policies right, and you need to be able to be transparent about it to the rest of your organization on how you and where you stand on, on these issues. So that's one. Um, so we can't skip it. The second is um, DOD represents a very large market. Somehow people think DOD, all it does is like somehow fly around the world and shoot people. I mean, this is not what DOD does, right? I mean, that's a part of what we have to do in times where that is needed. But DOD is managing large infrastructure and very large scale projects around the world, from construction to human resources, to education, to all kinds of stuff is happening. We have a, you know, Veterans Association is a very large healthcare association, right? Um, so... This is a very large part of our economy. And whether you look at it as your service to the country or you look at it as a large uh, total accessible market TAM you're going after, or you look at it as, you know, if the U.S. economy has to improve, this part of the economy has to become more efficient and, and so on as well. We have to play in it. I think there's a great opportunity everywhere you, you look. Uh, you know, you don't have to be involved necessarily DOD fighting machines. You can be involved in 
extremely you know civilian type applications for 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 DoD. So I think there's there's great opportunities for people to be involved. The third thing I'd say is uh, I I say this all the time to, to friends in, in the DoD and agencies as well, but this time I'd say that to the VCs. You know, there's a lot we don't know. Let's be humble about it. Let's be humble about not understanding the complexity of the organization that DOD or Pentagon represents. Let's be humble about the various different factors they have to take into account when when they make certain uh, decisions. Let's go learn. Let's open doors and let's learn. I think this is where DIU plays an extremely important role in educating uh, Silicon Valley. And as again, as I say, not just as geography, but the broader tech industry uh, on, on the needs of the DOD, on the impetus that's coming from there, on what is driving it, um, on building relationships across the two sides, uh, on creating processes and enabling processes that allow transactions to take place. You know, we talked about product sales and so on, but transactions can be of a hundred different varieties, but to enabling that to happen. And most importantly, building trust. I think these are long-term relationships. If you can build trust that there's a good partner on this side and there's a good partner on the other side, and we're all working towards the same thing, let's figure out how to make it work. I think good things happen. As I mentioned, in, in, in if you think about enterprise customers, they have what they call early beta customers. These early beta customers are not just lucky few who get to test the product early. They're really development partners. They may pay along the way, but the important thing is that they influence the product. This is your wedge that Silicon Valley calls. You know, find that wedge, which are your, you know, your most loyal customers. And then from there you expand. There's no reason why DOD cannot be a part of that wedge. And I think, you know, we have to create mechanisms for that to happen. I don't think enough of those wedges exist today. They, if they exist, often it's because of a few crazy people. They might sit at DIU or otherwise, or entrepreneurs and founders who, you know, who are committed to making it work and then they somehow make it work, thankfully. But I think we need to create it more institutionally so that a, a larger group of people are excited by this and also not, in, frankly, more importantly, not intimidated by that. They want to go build, they want to serve, they want to do good things, but they don't want to take on something that feels like this gigantic, uh, you know, uh, bureaucratic nightmare to deal with. And I think if we can, if we can make that happen, uh, there's an amazing opportunity. Look, th- how how big is SpaceX now? We we just put using a commercial carrier, we put man on another, you know, uh, space station, right? And 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 that rocket landed back. That has never happened before. And, and, and that has created a whatever, 20, 30, 40, God only knows what SpaceX is worth, but certainly $40 billion worth type company, right? Uh, with one customer, right. a customer that itself has, doesn't have a very large budget, frankly, right? It's not, we're not <laughs> talking DOD, but we did it. It was a crazy entrepreneur, Elon Musk, and obviously all his staff and team that made it happen. Think of Palantir. Same idea. I think it can be done. And I think we just need more examples so that more entrepreneurs get up. Just like entrepreneurs around the world get up and say, you know, hey, I'm going to create the next app that's going to become like a Facebook or a Snapchat or a Twitter. The same way we need to do that so I can create the next company that'll be the next, you know, Palantir, SpaceX, and hopefully a better version of Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and so on. I think these are all doable. And I think we need it because our our 40, 50-year-old systems are frankly just rusty and failing us. Well, Bilal, I, I don't even know how to follow that. Was that was inspirational just listening to you? <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, this has been such a joy uh, listening and learning and being educated uh, of the process on the other side. And I learned a lot as my, uh, about 
the entire podcast and about the process, the VC and, and the relationship there with, with DIU and, and the DOD. So I just want to thank you for taking the time to, to chat with us today. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you so much for doing what you're doing. Keep doing it and let us know how we can do better. Appreciate it. Thanks, Bilal. Thanks, take care. Thanks again, Bilal, for joining us today and helping startups and ventures connect with the Department of Defense. Hearing how you and other investors are thinking about the future of defense technology is absolutely fascinating. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and share it with a friend or colleague. And if you haven't already, be sure to listen to the first four episodes of From Tanks to Teleportation to learn more about the exciting work the Defense Innovation Unit is doing. From Tanks to Teleportation is a partnership between the Defense Innovation Unit and Founding Media. It's created in Austin, Texas. To learn more about the DIU, please visit our show notes. Thanks for listening.